This is God's word. Luke 3, 21 and 22. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Acts 2, 38 to 39. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Acts 8, 14-17 When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. The Word of the Lord. Let us pray. God of great mercy, having faith and sustaining faith in you comes very difficult for us. And we sit here this morning um, in different places with respect to that kind of faith. And some of us have worked through some of our issues, um, and we might feel like we're in a pretty good place. But others of us, maybe a lot of us, are, are wrestling with ongoing issues in our lives and in our um, even in our thinking about you, and whether it, believing in you, putting some, in some way putting our journey before you, putting you in some way in the center of our lives, um, that option hasn't found credibility yet for some of us. And we're looking for a warrant. Perhaps that's why we're here. But we're wondering if it's, if it's really going anywhere. Others of us just so desperately want you to be real because the hurt and the woundedness that we've experienced is so great. And so we, we look, all of us this morning, for you to in some way be real, in some way to connect with our lives. I pray that you help us to see that you do have our lives in your hands in some way, that we're not just here by mistake or because we, we just chose to walk one way versus the other way this morning, but that you you in some mysterious and help us to know as we sit here that we're not that different from each other, that all of us are more of a mess than we care to admit. <laughs> and yet your response to that is that you move towards us with your love, not giving up on us. So we pray that you meet us with that kind of love and that kind of grace, that even this morning, that we know you that way and that our lives might be changed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, you know, a few weeks back, it was in the middle of the NBA playoffs, which you knew it was, even though most of you probably weren't following it, but you knew it was because I was talking about it all the time from up here. And um, I, was at the, I was at a doctor's office, and I was making small talk with a nurse, um, and I you know, just brought up the, the playoffs. And she said, I knew she was a true Sacramentan because she, her response was, um, yeah, I just haven't been able to, to follow basketball much, the NBA, ever since that shot. 
See, some of you know what she was talking about. I knew what she was talking about. If, you, if you're not from Sacramento, um, and you're kind of new to this city, um, let me tell you that if there was a night when you could have walked into probably just about half of the homes in Sacramento at a particular moment right after this shot in the NBA playoffs took place, and you would have found people in a variety of poses, many of them probably just like this, looking at the TV, ah! No, you know, flat out on the ground. I mean, this is, I'm sorry, I know those of you who this is a wound, you're going to have to call your therapist again tomorrow and schedule an appointment. But here we go. That was it. See the .6 seconds on the clock. It was a legitimate shot. There they are, the dream team, the the kings, when they had it going for them. Well, (laughs) yeah, well, you know what? His name is Robert Ori. I know you didn't even want to hear me say his name, and he made that shot. But, wait, you know, this week, there's a lot of chatter because we got Jimmer, right? I mean, come on. You know, some of you were like, I have no idea. Where are we right now? <laughs> I, was, I was in church. What is this? Um, and, and, you know, it was kind of fun because I'm, you know, on Twitter now, and I'm hearing all these, these little little tweets about Jimmer is in town, and, and so he was here on this, like, whirlwind initiation tour of Sacramento for like one day and um, and anyway he was like the, the leading scorer in the uh, college you know last year just so you know so we got a pretty good player here and and then they have this ceremony where uh, they, they've got their the new picks uh, Ty Honeycutt Isaiah Thomas and and Jimmer Fredette with their new jerseys you know it's like this this key initiation moment of a new era, and some of you, you can, you can have a little hope. I'm telling you, I know, like like that nurse who wouldn't watch basketball anymore after that shot. You can you can have some hope now. I think these are some pretty good players. I, why am I talking about this? I hope there's a reason, right? You're hoping there's a reason. Well, um, there's something really kind of cool and, and and dramatic about and and very real about you know it's legitimate. It's they have stepped. These players have stepped now onto this new path. They are a part of the team. They've crossed the line from some ambiguous kind of going to be picked by a team, and now they're here. And now they are. Their identity is going to be Sacramento Kings, at least for a little while. And in many ways, the scripture passages that we just read also function as these these little highlights of these exciting moments of initiation. Um, You have Jesus. Uh, His ministry is being initiated publicly. And he's baptized, and the Holy Spirit is present. It descends on him in bodily form like a dove, the text says. Uh, and then we have the Jerusalem church at, at Pentecost. As now Jesus has, has ascended, and they're waiting, and, and there's the, the events of Pentecost which lead Peter to preach this message that ends with this call uh, to be baptized and to receive the Holy Spirit. It's a big moment of initiation. In fact, 3,000 people get baptized as a result. It's been a pretty good sermon. And then, uh, and then in chapter 8 of Acts, we see this next stage, and Jesus actually predicted this, that the message would go out to a whole new people group that was kind of very much divided from the Jews, the Sumerians. And what you see as, you, as we read that is, again, baptism and the Holy Spirit. Moment, these, these key moments of initiation. I can't help when I read through those stories and a bunch of the other ones in the book of Acts. I get excited. I get, uh, I get excited about what I'm reading. 
I think that as I'm reading it, I can tell that the, the gospel writer Luke, who also wrote the, the book of Acts, he was excited. He, was, he seems to be marveling at these stories and how they had just, he and everyone else who, who, who experienced this, they had never seen anything like this, ever, in their lives. Um, I think you can't help, but as we look at these kind of stories, you can't help but just get, at the very least, I mean, if you're not fully bought into the whole story and the Bible and everything else, at least it's intriguing. Um, or all the way to just being totally energizing and exciting and inspiring to read these stories and to think about this this point of initiation where you see clearly people's lives are turning radically in a new direction. And... Uh, and so just as Luke is marveling at, at these points of initiation and giving us these stories, um, we are going to marvel today. I want to marvel today at that point of faith, that point in people's lives, in the church's life, the point of initiation. I want to start with the, with the story of C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite stories of, of someone coming to faith, Talk about a precocious 14-year-old. By the age of... I'm just going to read what someone wrote about him, a good summary. By the age of 14, Lewis had rejected faith in any kind of God, and his horrific experience during World War I, in which he was wounded, only confirmed these convictions. Yet his immersion in European literature... Get this, he's an intellectual. His immersion in European literature repeatedly confirmed, uh, confronted him with the fact that the writers he most admired were Christian. So he begins teaching at Oxford in, in 1925. And by 1929, Lewis felt compelled to adopt a cautious theism. In his uh, 1955 autobiography called Surprised by Joy, Lewis described himself at this point as the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. <laughs> I love that. So on, the, on a fall evening in 1931, Lewis had dinner with fellow professors J.R.R. Tolkien and Hugo Dyson. They walked through the college's park, talking until the early hours of the morning. The conversation turned towards mythology. Lewis felt that myths, despite their imaginative appeal, were, in the end, merely lies. Tolkien proposed instead that the beauty of Christianity is that it is a myth that happens to be true. The universal hunger planted in human beings by God, evidenced by all the world's mythologies, was made manifest, finally in time and space, in Jesus Christ. God really did walk this earth, die, and rise again. And so then get this. A few days after that late night walk, Lewis was still pondering that conversation. He got into a sidecar of a motorcycle for a trip to the zoo. He later wrote, simply this way, when, when we set out, I did not believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And when we reached the zoo, I did. I just, I just love, especially how he calls himself the most reluctant convert in all of England. Um, you know, you might look at that and say, well, is that some kind of a fluke? I mean, that is so common to my own limited experience of God becoming active in people's lives. It's, it's ex- extremely common for someone to say, you know, Almost to say it this strongly, I wish I could give up on, on looking into Jesus and caring about this faith and showing up at church occasionally in the back, just kind of, you know, hiding away. I wish I could stop doing that, but I can't. There's something else going on here. 
There's something else. And I read it in little contact cards that get dropped in the basket. And I read that after church and I see same kind of stuff going on. Even just recently, one that basically said, despite this objection and that specific objection and this doesn't make sense, I still feel like for some reason God is pulling me toward himself. And unfortunately, it doesn't happen for me like it did for Peter, where, you know, the modern day would be that someone would come even before the service and say, hey, I heard your sermon podcast. What do I do? (laughs) I mean, you know... Uh, did you get that in the text? That Peter, it, it seems almost like Peter's so... I mean, this is his first sermon ever in his life. And it seems like he's so unpracticed and just, just still getting the hang of how to do this that he, he just kind of leaves the whole crowd hanging with the statement about Jesus being the Messiah. But, and, and the, but the crowd doesn't let him off the hook. They, they come to him and they say... They're, they're riveted. And they say, what do we do? It's like a preacher's dream. You know, Wow, that was so good. Just tell me what to do now. I'll do anything. I mean, it's just... Whoa! And then 3,000 people... I can't help but be envious. 3,000 people just come to... You know, I haven't had that experience yet. Maybe someday. Um, but what it's looked a whole lot, a whole lot more like is a very creative God, very creative God, working in unsystematic ways in the, lives, in the lives of people to draw them little by little towards His love and towards His grace. And uh, I think the word that I threw the word I threw in there was intentional, unsystematic. This, quite frankly, is a lot of Christians, and this is kind of a new thing that some of you might might be aware of. I won't spend a lot of time on it, but in the last 50 years, uh, really 40 actually, in the Christian movement, and especially North America, there's been a tendency to really try to systemize this this point of initiation into the Christian faith. In fact, to read passages like we just read and to, to basically say, if you haven't heard of, heard of this at all, to say there's really a two-stage initiation that happens with Christianity, that the first stage is, is sort of the, the normal baptism, you know, the water baptism, but then there's the second baptism that needs to happen, and the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and there's these particular signs that show us that that has happened. And so what this, what this um, two-stage thing actually creates is, a, is really kind of analyzing and, and asking yourself, well, have I had both? Have both of these things happen? And if I haven't had the second, then there's some kind of problem. Um, I want, you know, some of you might, you know, this might be a real issue for you. You've experienced a lot of this and you have questions, and I'd love to talk to you more. i got a lot of, actually, a, a full sermon worth of resources that I could have brought up here, but I'll put that on hold. But I just want to say two problems I have with that two-stage thing. The first problem is it's a very, it leads to a very non-gospel kind of ministry. Just very briefly, it leads. It basically leaves people in this 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 um, question kind of mode of Have I experienced enough, or have I opened myself enough? In the gospel, the good news that comes with Jesus that leads towards initiation into a new life is God has done enough. God has done it all, and the whole thing centers around that. So if there's anything. Kind of have you know if you if you're a Christian and you have your little radar on going if there's anything that puts into question whether whether enough has happened yet that I I could have a connection with God then you know the little ra- little buzzer goes off you know the crap detector that you have of wait I don't know that doesn't sound you know just leaving people in this phase of doubt and wondering have I opened myself enough okay that's one one problem I have with it the other one is basically that it's not it's not scriptural <laughs> let me just put it how um, this biblical scholar Michael Green puts it in his book, I Believe in the Holy Spirit. 
I love how he, how he paints the picture. He says, Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, Luke appears quite uninterested in providing a theology of Christian initiation. Those who have gone to him for tidy theological schemes have been disappointed. Sometimes reception of the Spirit follows baptism. Sometimes it precedes baptism. And sometimes a man is baptized who has no, no part nor lot in the Christian thing and whose heart is still fast bound in wickedness. He basically says Luke is little concerned to write a handbook on Christian initiation. What we see clearly is that baptism is universal. Reception of the Holy Spirit is promised. It's not in doubt. It's promised. And so we're left with a lot of these other questions that, that of course, our curious minds want to know. And exactly how does this work? And how does it work? I mean, that's what we're obsessed with. And we're left with just really the option to, if, if you want to believe in it and in some way uh, connect your life to it, just basically you end up saying, I don't know a lot. <laughs> and maybe the other thing that you do say is, well, with Eddie, it looked a whole lot like this. You know, with, with Melinda, it kind of happened different. It was like this. Um, or with, um, lead to my next story, with Victorinus, it happened like this. This is Augustine. St. Augustine writes his confessions and he writes in a lingo where he's writing to God his own story of coming to faith, really from being a, an intellectual skeptic. He comes to this, this wise mentor named Simplicianus. And Simplicianus was also a mentor of uh, St. Ambrose, who was a, a very notable figure in the early church around that time. So uh, St. Augustine comes to him before he's a Christian and starts to just tell him his story and try to figure out what, what's happening with my life. And Simplicianus feels compelled to tell Augustine the story of Victorinus. This is how Augustine says it. Victorinus, that old man, most learned, most skilled in all the liberal arts, who had read, criticized, and explained so many of the writings of the philosophers, the teacher of so many noble senators, one who, as a mark of his distinguished service in office, had both merited and obtained a statue in the Roman Forum, which men of this world esteem a great honor. This man, who up to an advanced age had been a worshiper of idols, a a communicant in the sacrilegious rites to which almost all the nobility of Rome were wedded, and who had inspired the people with the love of Osiris, all of which old Victorinus had with thundering eloquence defended for so many years. Despite all this, he did not blush to become a child of your Christ." a babe at your font, baptism, bowing his neck to the yoke of humility and submitting his forehead to the ignominy of the cross. This is is how he explains the story. He used to read the Holy Scriptures, as Simplicianus said, and thought out and studied all the Christian writings most studiously. He said to Simplicianus, not openly but secretly as a friend, you must know that I am a Christian. To which Simplicianus replied, I shall not believe it, nor shall I count you among the Christians until I see you in the Church of Christ. (laughs) Victorianus then asked, with mild mockery, is it then the walls that make Christians? Thus, he he often would affirm that he was already a Christian, and as often Simplicianus made the same fearful, uh, uh, I'm sorry, made the same answer, and just as often his jest about the walls was repeated. He was fearful of offending his friends, his proud friends, the demon worshippers, 
but he steadily gained strength from reading an inquiry and came to fear lest he should be denied by Christ before the holy angels if he now was afraid to confess him before men. Thus he came to appear to himself guilty of a great fault in being ashamed of the sacraments of the humility of your word when he was not ashamed of the sacrilegious rites of those proud demons whose pride he had imitated and whose rights he had shared. From, from this, he became bold-faced against vanity and shame-faced towards truth. Thus, suddenly and unexpectedly, he said to Simplicianus, let us go to the church. I wish to become a Christian. Simplicianus went with him, scarcely able to contain himself for joy. He was admitted to the first sacraments of instruction and not long afterwards he gave in his name that he might receive the baptism of regeneration. At this, Rome marveled and the church rejoiced. The proud saw and were enraged. They gnashed their teeth and melted away. And then I I just loved how this finishes. Finally, when the hour arrived for him to make a public profession of his faith, which at Rome, those who were about to enter into your grace, make from a platform in full sight of the uh, full sight of the faithful people in a set form with words learned by heart. So then, when he ascended the platform, just picture this, to make his profession, everyone, as they recognized him, whispered his name to one another in tones of jubilation. Who was there among them who did not know him? And a low murmur ran through the mouths of all the rejoicing multitude. Victorinus! Victorinus! There was a sudden burst of exultation at the sight of him, and suddenly they were hushed that they might hear him. He pronounced the true faith with an excellent boldness and all desire to take him to their very heart. Indeed, by their love and joy, they did take him to their heart. Love and joy were the hands with which they took hold of him. I love that story. And I like to imagine this, this wise spiritual leader, Simplicianus, kind of you know pinching himself as... He gets to see this prominent intellectual. Um, gets to walk alongside this transition in his life. And then this other prominent intellectual, now, now Victorinus is long dead, but now Augustine walks in. <laughs> and it's almost like a replay of the same thing. And then he gets to see Augustine move on to become bishop. Um, I, just, I just marvel at it. And I wonder if there's a part of you that's just grabbed by that as well. I mean, if you're a Christian, even if you've got the you know wavering degree of faith, do you have any sense of how life-giving it is to see God draw someone you know closer to Himself? Um, how how much, in a sense, your faith is helped times ten to see the impossible happen in the life of someone close by you? To have a friend who starts letting their defenses down just little by little. It's like God is just sanding away the layers of incredulity over maybe months, maybe years. To see that happening as someone begins for the first time to consider, you know, I might be able to believe that God is both real, but He might also be good. I might be able to trust Him with at least some of my life. Um, See, if you knew how much that helps your own faith, you'd be on your knees constantly asking that you might be able to see more of that. You'd be asking for the Holy Spirit to be very active in people's lives. And I know that can sound like I'm encouraging you know, the kind of uh, 
prayer that in the kind of excitement and constant aim towards your pill getting shoved down someone else's throat and more people believing exactly what you believe. It's not about that. I think, as Augustine himself said with respect to his own conversion, he said, O Lord, you struck my heart with your word, and from that moment I loved you. That's his simple summary of how God changed his heart. And I think in a lot of ways, when you pray that you might see some of that or might be used in some way, and other people who are hurting or wounded that you know, who are shut off maybe towards the reality of God, praying for God to be real in their life is simply wanting to have more love, the love of God be greater at the center of your life, to experience more of it. You've tasted enough of it that you're here. You want to taste more of it. You want to see God's love multiply in the lives of those around you. Now, on the other hand, if, you know, if you're not a Christian and you haven't crossed that line of faith, um, it can be a real turnoff to, to see a bunch of Christians celebrating, you know, like, this, like the story of Victorinus. The idea that Christians are sitting around celebrating conversions of new people who, who have been evangelized to. And I get that. I get the, the hesitancy to, to really um, enjoy the idea of a church acting like that. But all I ask is this. Will you do what, um, really what, what one of my other favorite converts um, did? She began to ask God. Or she began to look at her story as a story that God was writing. And would you just, okay, you know, a lot of objections to the Christian faith, a lot of objections to even the idea of something called evangelism. But will you just consider what might the picture of your life that God is writing, what might that be? She says this, Sometimes in a great novel... You cannot see until you get to the end that God was leaving clues for you all along. Sometimes you wonder, how did I miss it? (laughs) Surely any idiot would have been able to see from the second chapter that it was Miss Scarlet in the conservatory with a rope. (laughs) She's talking about her own story. Uh, Hers is exceptionally interesting because it involved a dream. And she, this, is, this is a good window into Lauren Winter. She writes in her book, Girl Meets God. If, you're, if you haven't heard of her or read anything, I strongly recommend it. She says, In the middle of my sophomore year of college, I dreamed about mermaids. <laughs> in the dream, my friend Michelle and I... I just love this. so off the wall. My friend Michelle and I and a group of women I didn't know were kidnapped by a band of mermaids. They took us underwater, and though we didn't sprout tails or grow fins, we could function just fine at the bottom of the sea. We could breathe and walk around and talk. Life, life as a captive to the mermaids wasn't actually so bad. Our captors didn't keep us gagged or in chains. They let us do whatever we wanted except go home. We could go to the movies, cook four-course dinners, read, read Ibsen. We just couldn't return to the shore. After a year underwater, a group of men came on a rescue mission. Most were graying, paunchy, 50-something men, Monday night football-watching types. But one was this beautiful, 30-ish, dark, Daniel Day-Lewis-like man. And I knew that he had come to rescue me. He would, of course, participate in the group effort while he was there, but I was the reason he'd come. We all went home after our year underwater. She says, I have bizarre and detailed dreams a lot. Recently, I dreamed I had to go to Japan, but first I spent the afternoon catching flying egg yolks in a basement with my Uncle Bob. And I dreamed, don't you, I just love this. And I dreamed that a friend of my sister's had gone on Oprah to talk about her boyfriend's infidelities, but in order to preserve her anonymity, she wore a giant bowling pin made from pasteboard over her head, 
When she began to cry, someone passed her a tissue, and she had to maneuver it up under the pin to get to her tears. Sorry. (laughs) You know you're picturing it, and you're laughing inside. I never try to interpret these dreams. I just remember what I can, and I get up, brush my my teeth, and hop in the shower. (laughs) But the mermaid dream was different. She says, I knew as soon as I woke up that the dream had come from God, and it was about the reality of Jesus the truth of him, that he was a person whose pronouns you had to capitalize, that he was God. I knew that with more certainty than I have ever known anything else. And if you if you read that book, you know it was a lot more than just one dream about a mermaid. <laughs> to give her a little more credit, there was a whole big journey there. So what do we do with these kind of stories? What do we do? I mean, we're, we're looking at these moments of initiation, these, these stepping in to the Christian faith finally after a journey? What do we do with it? Well, in a sense, one of the questions to ask is, do, do you want, is it desirable for you to have a kind of a spiritual fullness in your life that is lasting? Is that desirable to you at all? And, and if so, will you put yourself, will you put yourself in the middle of the place or places where these kind of stories are happening? And maybe you're thinking, well, of course, here we go. A a minister telling us to go to church (laughs) more often. Hello, we're here. (laughs) We're already here. We get it. McFly, come on. Um, But let me be more specific. If you look at what Peter says as he closes his, his message, it's like he has this long sermon and then they ask, well, what do we do? Tell us what to do. And, and so what are we to do? Well, he actually keeps it very simple as if he just kind of suddenly boils it down to the specifics and doesn't want to elaborate too much more. He says in verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Um. The three things in there that I want to highlight is that the word repent is not something that you picture a group of people in a church, they all can say they just did that once. And so what it, it, the word repent actually means turning. So it's a constant biblical mantra of repent. Turning to God. And what the Bible really shows us about that word and about the Christian life is that the Christian life is very... Um, very much connected to that word, so so much so that the most spiritual person that you know in your life or that you might know later on will not be the person who has the most religious behavior as a part of their life, most obvious stuff that they do religiously. Actually, the most spiritual person, according to the Bible, is the person who is the quickest and the most willing over and over again to admit their waywardness, to admit their mistakes to you and to their family, to their spouse, to their kids, to their parents. I screwed up again. I just, and not the kind of, hey, my bad, but, you know, kind of a weak apology plus a qualification as to why it makes sense that I did that. But just that, I am sorry. I hurt you. I shouldn't have done that. It was wrong. And, you know, I hope you'll forgive me. That's what repentance is, and it's a life. Same with forgiveness of sins. The person who centers their life around the need for not myself to get myself out of all my problems and all my holes, but to look to Jesus. 
move closer to, to Jesus as a solution for my brokenness and my mess and my sin. And thirdly, the receiving of the Holy Spirit. Let me just close by saying it's interesting that Jesus, according to Luke, Jesus tells us to ask for the Holy Spirit. In Luke uh, 11, verse 13, Jesus says, uh, very simple, If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? My hope is if you even drop in on one of these messages about the Holy Spirit over these seven weeks, that the one common thread will be is that you are led to just simply pray to God more for the Holy Spirit in your life. And I invite you to do that with me as I close. God of grace, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, would you pour out your Holy Spirit on our lives, in our relationships, and in our journeys of faith as, as you draw us towards yourself. Help us to repent. Help us seek forgiveness in your Son as opposed to fixing all our problems ourselves. And help us to remember that you, you basically tell us to pray for your Holy Spirit. 